Hi there, it's Marlette Narrate. As we celebrate Easter, Adam begins a new series about the cross. He begins the conversation by asking, what was the purpose of Jesus' death and resurrection? Was the purpose of the cross all about going to heaven, or does it include the restoration of creation? Enjoy the first message in the Cruciform series. Good morning. It's Happy Easter. It's really great to celebrate with you. Uh, thanks for choosing to celebrate with us. Uh, eyes on the preacher, not the preacher's wife. <laughs> Just kidding. So uh, uh, we have a, a deaf guest with us, so that's what Teresa's doing. Mostly what, couldn't, what didn't happen was I didn't make any sense the first few services, so we thought we'd try sign language on this one. <coughs> uh, I wanted to say, I know Hannah already said thanks, but I think never was the, the medal of a community that said we wanted to gather and scatter tested quite like this weekend. So uh, it's remarkable to me that people stood on a side hill and froze to death almost literally and all the work that you all did yesterday and then this morning. In fact, our hot water maker broke this morning and, and we had a person without even really being asked who already got here crazy early, just grab them and go start hitting coffee shops till he found one who would fill them for us. So just want to say, hey, it's really great to be the church with you. And if you weren't involved this weekend, that's not a shame thing, because the chances are you were involved the weekend before or will be next weekend. But, you know, Easter's about this, but really Easter was about that. So thanks for serving together. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was this last week, I was having lunch with a person who's becoming a new friend who is a psychiatrist. And, and she, was, she was sharing that in, in the field of psychiatry, there's really a couple, at least a couple different directions one can go with that field. And the, the first, and, and, and just to be clear, she wasn't necessarily... Uh, looking down her nose at either one of them, but or, or criticizing the first. But the first field is is what you might call psychoanalytic psychiatry. That's very Freudian and very theoretical and very uh, fairly esoteric, and and really takes decades to really land on the ground. And then there's what she called cognitive behavioral psychiatry, which of course concerns itself with the the behaviors that we perform and the thoughts that therefore therefore we have and the lives that we're trying to live. And what she was explaining, somewhat anecdotally, uh, we were talking about Mother's Day because she's going to help us do some stuff for Mother's Day, and we're excited about that. But what, as she was sharing that, it was very encouraging to me to hear because I realized that it's not just the church and theology and conversations with, about God that, that struggle with the tension between the theoretical and the practical. That it, that it strikes me that Easter probably as much as anything points out that, that there's a way of talking about God and church and theology that, that is pretty entertaining to those doing it and is fairly esoteric and largely removed from the lives that normal people are trying to live and the people that we're trying to love. And then there's a field of, uh, of theology that, that I'm going to call practical theology, and frankly, I would argue it's, it's what the Bible is full of, where, where really the conversations about God stem from this firm belief that God wants to be known because he believes that knowing him, it, it drives the lives that we're trying to live today and the people we're struggling to live today. And I think Easter pulls all that out there all the more because on Easter we can gather and talk from a very theoretical, esoteric place and leave having felt good about the fact that we sang some songs, but not really knowing why any of it matters. I guess I'm proud to be a part of a tradition that goes, yeah, but that's maybe not what the early church did. You know, I think on Easter, if we're being honest, we are celebrating a couple of the most bold, audacious, uh, b- borderline uh, controversial, well, certainly controversial, but, but pr- pr- pretty huge tells, pretty huge ideas that, that God became a person. 
And that somehow, even though the math doesn't work, that person wasn't 50-50 God and, and, and human. He was 100% God and 100% human. And as if that's not uh, big enough of a claim, that that God died literally on a cross and he was dead, like literally dead. That's a huge claim that God's even capable of dying, let alone that God would become a human and, and die really a revolutionary's death. And the second claim that I think is j- just as huge is, and for 2,000 years, what the church has said is we center ourselves not around this idea, but around this historical moment, that three days later, that God-man person that we call Jesus walked out of the tomb, having been fully dead, walked out of the tomb fully alive. Not as a ghost, not as a spirit, not like Patrick Swayze, you can put your arm through him, not like that at all. But that this, this, this Jesus was a physical person, in some sense, every bit as physical as he was before, in another sense, more physical than any of us has ever been. Those are huge, huge claims. And I think on Easter, the opportunity that we have is to ask, why does it matter? Like, why does the cross matter? Like, who cares? What was God trying to accomplish? What did Jesus think he was trying to accomplish? Why did the early church see his crucifixion, Jesus' crucifixion, not as the end of a revolution? Because that was a major thing that crucifixion was reserved for, to end revolutions. Why did the early church see Jesus' crucifixion not as the end of a revolution, but the beginning of a revolution? You know, N.T. Wright, to whom I'm indebted for a lot of what we're going to do in the next month, uh, the the way he says it is, so why exactly or how exactly was the world different after 6 p.m. on Good Friday? I I think if it matters, it it should matter on a Sunday morning like this. And it should speak to the lives that we're going to try to live when we leave here. Uh, Several years ago, I think it was as many as five or six, I had lunch with with a person who's a friend who, who I have great respect for, who at the time had followed Jesus longer than I had, who was just a phenomenal person, uh, had a great marriage, uh, and, and, and what he communicated to me was that he was done. Like, he couldn't do the Christian thing anymore. The gospel had become too absurd for him. He couldn't sign off on it anymore. And his point wasn't to be disrespectful, and his point wasn't to, therefore, go live some, some kind of hedonistic life. In fact, the opposite's true sense. But his point was, I just, I can't do it anymore, Adam. And he started to point out things like this. Like, Adam, I, I'm struggling to, to continue to believe that God solved the violent issues of the world with more violence. He said things like, you know, Adam, I, I think if you step out of the Christian context and you looked at what we claim to believe, you would call it a child sacrifice cult. He was struggling to, to, to further and continue to embrace this idea that God was so angry and ticked off at the world that if he sent his son and somehow had his son killed, that, that, that all of that hate could go on him and then God would be talked into liking us again. And he just couldn't do it anymore. It would seem that at worst, and these are my words, not his, what he was saying was if that's who God is, I, I, I'll take my chances without him. And at best, and I think this is more representative of what he was saying, if, if that's the way Christians understand God, I'm not sure that I trust them to help me know God because that couldn't possibly be true. Now, I'm not saying that's you and I'm not saying it's me, but it very well could be you. And I'd be lying if I said uh, I, I didn't get close to it becoming me because I, I think that the, the more you ask some of these questions, you go, what, what was happening with the cross? Now, I left that meeting not necessarily persuaded and certainly not angry, but, but troubled, and became all the more troubled over the ensuing years because I found myself often coming up alongside friends just like that one, many of whom had been raised in the church, who were saying essentially just that. I, I can't do it anymore, Adam. It, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. I, I guess the question that I, I feel like we have to ask is, what exactly was God doing with the cross? 
And is there a way that supersedes the, the violent narrative that we're all so prone to sign off on? The, the other thing is, is the resurrection. Why was it necessary? And, and, and what, what did the church understand that was happening there? Because it's probably not lost on you that, that if we leave Western evangelicalism to itself, uh, what, what the resurrection has devolved into is a belief that when we die, we get to go to heaven. And that's the, that's the aha of Easter. Now, to be sure, the, the early church cared deeply about the cross. Everything they believed centered itself around a resurrection. The apostle Paul goes so far to say, if it didn't happen, we should all go find something else to do with our Sunday morning. But why? Why was it so essential? Is the narrative that somehow what the resurrection teaches us is that God somehow constructed this time capsule by which when we die, our invisible souls zoom off into the space where for 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we sing songs to God. Is that the story of resurrection? And if it isn't, well then, what do we do? And what is it? And if it is the story, if that really is the promise of resurrection, why does it sound so little like the New Testament? Now, one way I think to deal with this is to ask yourself this question. Uh, Tim Mackey helped me with this one, and it was tremendously, it it brought some clarity for me. If you were to summarize, say for your six-year-old or your 13-year-old or your coworker or your friend, if you were to summarize, what's what's the essence of Jesus' teaching? Like, what's his message? And if you were to summarize that, uh, and you didn't get an elevator speech, in fact, you don't even get a complete sentence. You get a phrase, you get a couple words. How might you summarize it? Now, I don't want to do that patronizing thing where you give me the wrong answer, and I give you the right answer, and I feel good about myself, and you all leave enlightened. So let me just spare you that and tell you what I think I would have answered um, very recently were it not for some honest delving into these very issues. Because I think part of what was driving me is, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this the way the church has always thought about these questions? And if not, how did they? Well, one of the things I think I would have said if you asked me most recently was I would have said, well, love God, love people. That, that summarizes what Jesus taught. Value people, perhaps. If you're prone for justice, and there's been seasons probably in some of your lives, certainly wasn't mine, I would have said, love your enemy or love your neighbor. If you struggle with anxiety, you, you might say, do not worry, or to put it in the positive, which is kind of antithetical to those of us who struggle with anxiety, uh, trust God. Like, he, he's good and can be trusted. And those would all be true statements. But the interesting thing about them is that if you take the four Gospels, which aren't really biographies, but, but, but nonetheless, they, 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 they somehow capture for us who Jesus was and what he taught. In three, of the four, in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in three of them, the Gospel writers and the church that has curated those books for us ever since, they seem to give us an answer because in the opening words that Jesus said in his public ministry, they all have him saying very close to the same thing. Mark says it this way in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. He says, and I can't, my eye, man, I'm getting old. My eyes just don't move that fast anymore. Uh, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, if you were to open up to Acts and you were to spend some time there, once you kind of see through that matrix, what you see is that the church was constantly summarizing the message of Jesus, not with you get to go to heaven when you die, not that God so hated the world that he sent his son to, to bear that hate, but that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But kingdom is a weird word, and maybe that explains why we've dropped it from our Christian lexicon. We, we don't use the word kingdom unless we're thinking about a trip to Europe or we might go see a castle and some people wearing tin helmets and long wooden sticks and things like that. We don't think about kingdom. Or maybe you're watching a horse race and you think of some borderline archaic form of government where there's a lot of oil and someone with a lot of power and a family that kind of contains that. We don't use kingdom language, and maybe that's what gets us so uncomfortable. You know, one of the things that I think is worth, worth observing is kingdom... In our culture, it's a noun. 
A kingdom is a place, again, with walls and castles and crowns and bud light, it would seem, according to what we're dealing with now. But kingdom in the text, it's not primarily a noun, it's an action. It's not that it's not a place, but it's primarily a verb. It deals with reigning. In fact, do you, do you know how far into the Bible you have to get before you get the theme of kingdom coming up? Well, you don't have to get any further than the first page. Genesis chapter 1, then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. There, there's the theme. They may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Question, does that sound like a God whose master narrative was to create something so that he could kind of suck us up in some kind of divine vacuum where he would surround himself with a choir who would sing to him forever? Does that seem like the narrative of the text? No, the text starts, doesn't it, with a God who wants to give people things to do, who wants to share responsibility with them, who wants to reign with them, which brings to the surface this potential observation, though you have to decide whether or not you agree with it. What if Jesus didn't primarily see himself as a moral teacher? What if Jesus primarily saw himself as a prophet, as a revolutionary? See, the grand narrative that we have in the West is one of moral advancement. We can feel good about ourselves and the society of which we're a part so long as we're becoming more and more just as a society. So long as our understanding of things like race and gender are getting better and better and better. And that's a fine narrative. But what if it's not the narrative of the Bible? What if the narrative of the Bible is not a moral narrative, it's a vocational narrative? What if the narrative of the Bible isn't you were good and then you became bad and then on Easter Jesus made you good again? What if the narrative of the Bible is you were made for a purpose, a vocational purpose, which is why you get out of bed in the morning and you kind of like vacation, but mostly you like vacation so that you can work more effectively when you go back to work? What if the, the, the kingdom narrative is you were made to do something with God and you kind of peed that down your leg and God wants to rescue you for it again? What if it's not, you were good, you became bad, now you're good again. It was you were made for a purpose, you blew it, and God is going to regain it for you. Now, what, what, what is, and, and at the risk of sounding more arrogant, what, what's the narrative, what's the, what's, what's the grand narrative of the text? Well, let's just start in Genesis 1. God creates things, he calls people to a purpose, we waste it, we turn things over to idols, is what Paul calls it. And then God says, okay, that's gone really bad. What am I going to do about that? God identifies a guy named Abram. We know him as Abraham. He says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a conduit, a, a tube, a vessel by which I'm going to reestablish my kingdom on earth through people. Not a reservoir. Reservoirs get rotten and dirty and skunky. A conduit, moving, living water, the Old Testament calls it. Abraham has sons who have sons. They become Israel. They end up in Egypt. And then they become what? They become slaves in Egypt. This is why I, I certainly agree with those who would say the grand narrative of the text is from Exodus. Because God's people become enslaved in Egypt. And for 400 years, they're incapable of rescuing themselves. That their vocation has been taken from God and given to Pharaoh, who epitomizes is a type of evil in the Old Testament. In fact, they some, send some of their best and brightest to rescue them, or at least one of them sends himself, and it fails. And then later, God shows up to Moses, and this is important language, and says, hey, Moses, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And you and I, we're going to Egypt, and we're going to rescue these people from a situation they cannot rescue themselves. And so Moses goes in, and, and you may know the story, but there's a series of plagues, and Pharaoh will just not, he will not relent 
Eventually, there's a 10th plague, and, and God says to Moses, okay, Moses, here, here's the deal. Tonight, what everyone needs to do is they need to fly a red cardinal's flag over their house because the cubs are in trouble. So anybody who hides a red, just trivializing things, but you need to put blood over the doorpost of your house because tonight, Moses, the angel of death is going to pass through this land, and those who don't have the blood, their firstborn will die. And that very thing happens. Pharaoh wakes up full of grief. His son is dead. And in that moment, he says to Moses, get thee out of here. And Israel leaves. And ever since that moment, Israel has celebrated that day as what? It's Passover. The day where God rescued them from a situation they couldn't get themselves out of. The day where their purposes had been stolen. But like a modern day slave, they couldn't rescue themselves. And the story keeps going. They eventually get into the land. They establish a kingdom. They get it all going on. And then things go south because that tends to be the way things happen. We're prone to self-destruction. Things get worse and worse and worse. The kingdom divides in half. Eventually in the 700s, Assyria comes and destroys the northern kingdom. In the 500s, we're talking B.C., Babylon comes and destroys the southern kingdom. And really from that point forward, there's no more kingdom. Israel doesn't, they don't get the benefits of sovereignty. They're constantly under the reign of other leaders. And do you know how the Old Testament closes? Whether you read the Jewish Old Testament, which ends, ends with Second Chronicles, or you read our Christian Old Testament, which ends with the Italian prophet Malachi, it closes with a group of people saying, God, where the heck have you been? Where are you? Stephen would tell us in Acts, for 400 years, they became slaves of foreign regimes and evil empires. In fact, one of the real controversies, the, the real scandal, one of them of the New Testament is the early church is claiming that one of those oppressors has actually become the church itself, which I think is a warning to all of us that we're all prone to it. So for 400 years, they're captives. They can't get themselves out of it. And then Jesus shows up and he summarizes what he's going to teach for three years by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Question, why does Jesus center the cross around Passover? Because we know that he did. In the book of Matthew, in chapter 26, and you may be familiar, this is what communion's all about. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Here's an interesting, I think, observation about Easter and Passover and the cross. Jesus doesn't ever really give a complex explanation for what cross means. What's all entailed? What does he do? He has a meal. There's a story. What if Jesus purposely centered the cross around Passover because the grand narrative was not God so hated the world that he sent his son to bear the abuse so that he could like people again, but God was so passionate about rescuing the world that he showed up and rescued them from a series of things that they were incapable of rescuing themselves from. What if that's why Jesus surrounds it with this meal? And furthermore, why, why does it, the resurrection happen on the first day of the week? Matthew 28 tells us it does, did after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week. Why, why, why does Matthew give us that detail? There's a ton of detail we don't get. Why the first day of the week? Well, could it be that Matthew, being a Jewish thinking person himself, whose gospel, by the way, is pregnant with new Exodus kind of allusions, could it be that he's thinking Genesis 1? That Jesus showing up 
means a new Moses, a superior Moses, a Moses who is actually God himself, Jesus Christ. He showed up and rescued us from the oppression of our own brokenness, from the idolatry. Could it be that some of the weird things that we see in the Gospels, and sometimes we go like, did we just not understand mental health then? But what's going on with all the demoniac stuff and all the craziness? Could it be that it really was an epic struggle between evil and a God who says, I'm going to rescue you from something you're incapable of rescuing yourself? Could it be that the narrative is not good, bad, good, but vocational purpose, called to go to work tomorrow, knowing, as Paul would say, that everything you do, you do it as one working for the Lord? Could it be that the narrative is you were created with vocational purpose and you blew it? And on Easter, God fully and finally kicked into gear his restoration project. Could it be that the grand narrative of the church hasn't been, most notably over the broad expanse of 2,000 years, God is, he wants to get us the heck out of here. Could it be that God has a project going on and he's more committed to it than we ever have been committed to anything and he is into the restoration of creation through people? Maybe we could ask it this way. Have you ever been saved? Now, that's an uncomfortable word. For some of us, it means lots of things. For some of us, it brings up lots of baggage. Let me reword that. Have you ever been rescued? Ever been pulled out of a situation that in hindsight, you could have never got yourself out of? Years ago, I I was able to meet a guy named Eric. And by the time I met Eric, uh, he he was in his 50s. Uh, He had started and lost a family. He'd had kids, and his kids, by the time I met him, mostly resented him. His wife was gone. He'd started a business and built it up and mostly lost his business. In fact, by the time I met Eric, uh, he, he was waiting uh, to be sentenced to federal prison where he knew he would spend many, many years. See, uh, what had happened to Eric in his 40s and into his 50s, as I understand it, is that he had developed a habit of going on to online chat rooms And this was in the 2000s when chat rooms were oh so dangerous and probably still are, but we have lots of other things in our back pocket that we can repeat some of this danger with. He'd he'd developed a habit of going into chat rooms uh, and meeting 14 and 15 and 16-year-old daughters, not third-world prostitutes, not slaves, the daughters of people like ourselves, and developing relationship with them to the extent that the next time he traveled to the city that they lived in for the work that he did, they would come to his hotel room and he could have sex with them. By the time I met Eric, uh, the last such occasion, which was actually uh, uh, not even a business trip involved, because this is the way this stuff goes, it was a trip for the trip's sake, Uh, as he sat in the hotel room waiting for the familiar knock at the door, eventually it occurred and he answered the door and he was greeted not by another 15-year-old girl that he would abuse, but by two federal agents who obviously put handcuffs on him, and he knew in that moment his life was forever different. But you know what Eric said to the officers as they were putting the handcuffs around his wrists? You know what he said to them? Of course, I I know the story from his perspective. But you know what he said to them? As they're handcuffing him, and he, he, he knew in the blink of an eye everything was different. You know what he said? He said, thank you. Thank you. Why? Because in that moment, it would seem that Eric understood these aren't the bad guys. These are the good guys. 
though my life will never look the same again, I have been rescued from something that I am incapable of rescuing myself from. And in that moment, he understood that his vocational purposes had gone astray. The purposes for which he had been made had gone way off. And somehow, he was trusting and that God was going to use this moment to restore things, though he knew he was going to prison. Now, let me ask you again. Have you ever been rescued? Ever found yourself in a situation which, in hindsight, you couldn't have got yourself out of? Ever been pulled? Have you ever been saved from drowning or a fire or a car accident? Uh, ever been fired and, in hindsight, it was the best blessing of your life? Uh, ever ever upon reflection looked back and went like, oh yeah, that relationship at work was going nowhere good. It was going to lead me to some bad things. And in hindsight, you got rescued? Ever got a DUI and in hindsight it was the best thing that ever happened to you? Ever, ever been rescued from addiction because some friends loved you enough to, to call for an intervention? Ever had a, a, a real close call birth? And some great nurses and doctors rescued you and your child? Ever survived a heart attack or cancer? Have you ever been rescued? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you didn't know it at the time, but you were in so deep there was no getting yourself out of it and grace showed up and got you out of the situation? My, my question is simply this. What if, what if that's Easter? What if that's the cross? That the God of Passover knows full well what it's like to get ourselves in a situation in which we are enslaved to our own brokenness and this invisible force of evil and God one. And what if resurrection is about the invitation of God to step every morning and every afternoon and every evening back into the vocational purposes for which God made us? Listen, I don't know where you're at in your spiritual journey, and if we can help, we certainly would love to have a conversation. But in just a moment, as the band comes back up here, we're, we're going to give you a chance to take communion. We'll have elements here, here, and back there. And just some housekeeping things. We have lots of gluten and no gluten and wine and juice. And we dip, we don't sip because winter never ends in Helena. Neither does the flu. So we just try to play it safe. But ultimately what we're doing is we're celebrating Passover. The purpose of this is that we're reminded that on Easter we became rescued from something that, that had a hold on us that we couldn't have broke on our own. That God saw our greatest foe and took it on. And he won. And that God doesn't give up on his project to rule with and serve with people. I'd like to pray, God. Thanks, Lord, for, for the text and the church and the men and women who have curated story for us. God, thank you that... God, I'm thankful that in giving explanation to the cross, you, you gave us a meal not a long theological expose. God, I'm thankful that, that you know better than we do how deep we can get ourselves into trouble and yet how those moments when we're rescued become the high points of our life. God, I pray that the message uh, this morning would, would be one of conviction and yet one of hope, one of opportunity, one in which we, we seize our divine moment where we lay claim to the purposes for which you've made us. And God, whether that's changing diapers in this season or, or leading massive organization or something in between, that, that we would know that church is valuable to the degree that it drives our desires uh, to put you on display out there in the real world.
We love you, God. Amen. If you would like to engage further with Narrate Church, you can find contact information online, www.narratechurch.org. We would love to hear from you.